Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Um, all right. If you have your Bibles, will you open up to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14? Uh, we're going to read that in just a moment. It's part of that was what was read this morning during our Advent reading. Um, we're going to get there in just a minute. We can just go back. I have control this week, so we can go back. Jersey, can you just go back to that title slide? We're not going to read that quite yet. I don't want people to be distracted. Um, so uh, this, this series has been... Um, very impactful to connect something that we do, uh, our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we talk about the fourfold gospel, that Jesus came for four reasons. He's, he's our savior, he's our sanctifier, he's our healer, and he's our king. He's our coming king, but he's our king now as well. Uh, and uh, so it, it's been fun to talk about that through the lens of the Christmas season. Why did Jesus come? What's the real reason for the season? So we talked that first week about we, we celebrate this season because Jesus has come into the world to be our Savior. That, that we were uh, in bondage to sin, the powers of darkness to the powers of this world. And Jesus has, as it says uh, in, in 1 John, we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and been transferred to the kingdom of light. And it, we talked about how uh, we are not just uh, saved, but we're sanctified. Remember, we talked about we, we don't just have the renovated house. We have all the furnishing, furnishings and the decorations and this beautiful life that Jesus fills us with. And we also talked about how uh, he is our healer. That this isn't just like uh, the sense of having a warm feeling in our hearts, that he really provides for our physical healing in his death on the cross. That this is, this is actually part of the truth of the gospel message. And this week, what I want to talk to you about is the final reason for the season, and, and it is that Jesus came into the world to be our king. So let's re read together Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Very familiar Christmas story, uh, but we're going to pull out of it uh, some things that uh, perhaps we have not paid as much attention to or have not noticed as much. Read with me. It says, At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. It was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, 
But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would give us your eyes to see your ears to hear what your scripture says to us today. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray, Lord, that we would be transformed by you, King Jesus. In your name we pray, Lord, amen. Amen. Christmas is really close. How many of you have big Christmas plans? No one has big, some people have big Christmas plans. That's okay if you don't. Uh, do you, any of you get together with family at Christmas? Family, friends, kind of typical thing, yeah? Yeah, how many of you are like, yeah, I get together with family at Christmas? And how many of you are like, yeah, I get together with family at Christmas? <laughs> um, someone wise long ago said that when you're sitting down with your family around the holidays and you're having your wonderful Christmas meal, how many of you love a good Christmas dinner, a good Christmas meal? Oh, man, it's the best. I love it. Uh, how many of you heard the, the wise old saying, when you get together with family at the, uh, at, at the holidays, there's two things you should not discuss. Politics and religion. So I'm going to do both this morning and, and, break, and break both of those rules. Religion, kind of the obvious, we're here in church. And, 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 and uh, we're going to talk about how... Uh, politics, what does politics have to do with this? Um, when we say that Jesus has come into the world to be our king, it implies that he is the king of a kingdom, of a domain, yes? In fact, this was a major message of Jesus's ministry. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from his birth to his ascension to heaven, he was about bringing his rule and his reign to earth. Think about how he taught his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is. So one would say that Jesus is trying to get his rule, his reign, his governance happening on earth like it is in heaven. Is that sound biblically sound to you? Reasonable, right? He, he's bringing a kingdom that implies governance. Now, just before you freak out, he's not, we're, we're not talking about establishing a theocracy here. Um, it implies, though, that there is a government, some way of people relating and, and working out life together, that he wants to see his version of that 
play out in the world. Isaiah 9, 7 that we heard this morning, his government and his peace will never end. Did we read that this morning? He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. So Christmas, bizarrely enough, demands some version of a political conversation because of the angel's announcement. The king, he's on the throne of King David. He's come. Now, politics, just to drill down on this a little, politics comes from the Greek word polis. It means city, but really what it's referring to, it's not referring to the streets and the buildings. It's referring to the people. It's referring to the the group, the people. The same as church isn't talking about the building. It's talking about you and I, the people. Politics refers to literally, it's politicus in the Greek. It literally means like what the people do. What are their affairs? We could say it a different way. Like how do people relate and agree to relate to each other and not relate to each other? That's basically what politics is. What I'm not talking about when I I say we need to have a political conversation is we're not uh, per se talking about political ideology. We're not talking about partisan politics. In fact, I'll even say now, no matter who you vote for, even if you don't vote, uh, you are very welcome in our church, no matter what your voting record is. We are all here together on a journey to be shaped more by King Jesus and less by the kingdoms and the kings of this world. Yes? So Jesus and his kingdom, uh, it demands at Christmas a political conversation, but Jesus and his kingdom does politics entirely differently from every government, every kingdom, every empire on earth. So I want to just make that clear from the beginning. How many of you are tired of the polarization of everything? Everything is, well, if you don't believe this, then you believe this. There's no room for nuance. There's no room for conversation anymore. I actually, as a tangent, but one of the gifts I believe the church, local churches can give to their communities is a place for healthy dialogue. And I, and I really would love to see our church be able to be a place like that in the, in the community where people can hold uh, conflicting views together and not bite each other's heads off. That almost sounds like a miracle right there in and of itself in this day and age. But how many of you are tired of the holidays being tense because of this kind of thing? How many of you are tired of uh, how awkward family conversations are, or friend conversations are, or workplace conversations are? How many of you are tired of what you see on the internet? It's just exhausting. There was actually a study done a few years ago on the political temperature of Americans, and it found that the loudest people on any political topic were always the people at the extremes of either end of the political spectrum. So what it meant was the... uh, overwhelming amount of what you would hear was coming from the viewpoint and the perspective of those on the far extreme of different issues, which is why things are becoming more and more polarized. In fact, this study found that there was a vast majority of Americans who were so tired, they labeled this group the exhausted majority. 
How many of you feel like the exhausted majority sometimes? And you're just kind of like, I have, I vote a certain way, I have my convictions, but can we all just settle down? You know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you love the hype. I can get sucked into it. I actually am very disciplined about how much news content I consume because I know how it shapes me. And it actually shapes me away from the kingdom of Jesus and more towards the kingdoms of this world. So personally, I have to watch that and monitor that. And so for you, maybe it's similar. You get really into it, and you might need to, like, take a chill pill. But some of you, maybe many of you, are just done. You're just done. You, you don't even feel like you're, you're comfortable asking questions because you're just going to get your head ripped off. You don't, you don't know about this? You're not, what? Where have you been? You're like, I'm just asking a question. I really want to know. I don't understand. So I'd like to suggest that this tiredness, this weariness, this exhaustion that we all experience is actually often because we are placing our hopes in the wrong kingdom. Even if you're like, I'm staying out of it, it's too exhausting, I would suggest even this exhausted majority has placed its hope in the wrong kingdom. Because we, we say, well, I'm, I'm, I don't think either, either side has all the answers. I don't think anyone has it figured out. But I don't know what to do. And we kind of throw up our hands and we just are resigned to what it is. You know what I'm saying? And so this weariness that we experience, this exhaustion, is because we've tried to locate hope in the wrong kingdom, the wrong king, the wrong ruler. And... In Luke 2 that we just read, we're given a picture of how the birth of Jesus, how Christmas itself, it throws politics and religion completely upside down. And it invites us to see God as king in a way that defies logic. It defies everything that makes sense for earthly kingdoms and powers and parties. To put it simply, Jesus has come into the world to be king. And because he has come to be king, we can find true hope. We can experience true justice, true peace that every kingdom aspires to but ultimately fails at bringing. So I want to unpack what this scripture says because it does something absolutely radical for its time, and I don't want us to lose the weight of what the scriptures are writing because I think we need its weight and its radical nature in our day. Luke begins to compare and contrast the baby Jesus with Caesar Augustus. Now you might be saying, what are you talking about? Why is that the case? They just mentioned that he conducted a census. Let me explain something that would have been obvious to the readers of this passage in Luke's day. Caesar Augustus, quick history lesson, was adopted. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who conquered most of what was the, the height of the Roman Empire. He was, uh, his name Octavius was Augustus's name, uh, and he, he was heir to the empire, heir to Julius Caesar. And Octavius took on the title and the name Augustus, 
the, the term Augustus it, it, uh, is uh, explicitly a, a deification term. He was trying to personify himself as a god. It means majesty, to be venerated, to be venerated. This was the term that would be eventually used in emperor worship throughout the empire of Rome. And he was set up in this way. Uh, he took charge of Rome and, and took this title of Augustus after a bloody civil war in which he destroyed and murdered and killed off all of his rivals. If you're familiar at all with Mark Antony or Cleopatra, they were chief among his rivals and the last ones that he defeated. And, and his victory launched a golden age, and a, a legitimate golden age as far as the Roman Empire is concerned, that they called the Pax Romana, Roman peace. It was a time of what they called justice and peace. In fact, uh, there were inscriptions that archaeologists have found in, in modern-day Turkey uh, where uh, it, it described uh, Caesar as the son of God. He was described as the bringer of peace from heaven. And, and the language used is almost identical to the song that the angels sing about Jesus. Almost. It says peace on earth to with whom God is pleased. And it talks about Augustus bringing peace to the whole earth. Meanwhile, at the same time, you see how Luke begins to subtly compare Jesus with Augustus, given the backdrop and what people would be familiar with. This was part of the emperor worship cult. It wasn't just something that was kind of known about Caesar and just it was a, luck, a happy coincidence. These were details that were etched into every Roman uh, person's brain, everyone throughout the Roman Empire. They understood these are terms for Caesar. He's the bringer of peace. So suddenly, Jesus here, notice the comparison. He was the adopted son of Joseph, heir to the throne of David. Now, that's loaded language in and of itself. You do a quick survey through the Old Testament. Anywhere it talks about the throne of David in the Old Testament, you're going to see that person, that figure that would sit ultimately on the throne of David would be someone who would bring peace, and bring justice. They were someone who was going to establish it once and for all. And as we read in Isaiah, the increase of their government would see no end. This is very, very loaded, subversive language from Luke to be writing here about Jesus in connection with Augustus. To top it all off, there's these shepherds, these nobodies that are generally disrespected in their culture. They raised sheep, so they were considered unclean even by the Jews, really poor. They didn't even own the sheep, most likely. And, and these were not the people you wanted on your marketing team to announce the birth of God. Yet this is what Luke shows and tells that, hey, guess what God did? So just a quick compare and contrast. Augustus is the adopted heir to the throne of Caesar. Jesus is the adopted heir of the throne of David. Augustus was stylized as the son of God, and Jesus was called the son of God. Augustus claimed he brought peace and justice. Jesus 
proclaimed he brought peace and justice. You see the connections, the comparisons here. But then Luke does something very weird. And, and, and this is where we begin to see how the politics of Jesus' kingdom are very, very, very different than the politics of the earthly kingdoms. You see, while all of these comparisons and similarities were true, here's the contrast. Augustus was born into wealth, status, and power, which is what is expected of someone who is going to be able to rule. Jesus, on the other hand, was born into poverty, squalor, and filth. Not what is expected of for someone who's supposed to be a ruler. You can't rule from that position, can you? We wouldn't think so. See, Augustus demanded on a whim the movement of people through census. I have things I need figured out, so here is what everyone in my empire is going to do. Make it happen. Jesus, on the other hand, personally participated in the struggle of every person in the Roman Empire as they had to make this journey. This was not a simple journey. For Mary and Joseph, they had to go at least four days on foot. This was a complicated process, but Jesus participated in the struggle of the people, unlike Caesar. Augustus' decree, his, his decree about the census was announced in every province by important regional government officials. Jesus' birth was announced by shepherds who no one would listen to. This isn't going great for Jesus. It doesn't look like this, this strategy makes sense, does it? Augustus' army had brought peace through violence. Jesus' army announced peace by singing a song. And that peace, ultimately, Jesus would bring through taking Augustus's, Caesar's army's violence in his own body. So you see these two kingdoms are pitted against each other. The kingdoms of the earth represented by Caesar, the kingdom of God and Jesus, completely different. See, Luke is picking up on a radical theme that the early church would, would make. Well, you think about there's campaign slogans these days, right? So imagine if the, the, the early church had a campaign slogan. It's not quite what this is, but they would make a statement. In the Greek, it was Yesu Kurios. means Jesus is Lord. We think about that as like, oh yeah, he's Lord of my heart. I have to honor him and follow him. He's not just my savior, he's my Lord. How many of you who grew up in church are familiar with that, right? Okay, but, but that's not how the early church meant it. Because there was a competing political slogan of the time, and it went like this, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And you were required often in different periods, especially when it was intensely commanded, you were required to make this proclamation before Roman officials so they knew that you were loyal. You had to give them your allegiance. And so this was constantly the challenge of the early churches. They would not say Caesar Curios. Yesu Curios. Do you see the problem? 
You see, this, this statement is so stunning in the scriptures. It's, it's not just theological. It's not just something for my heart. Do you remember last week how we talked about how dualism, it messes with our ability to re- accept and receive healing? Because dualism says, the spirit, this part of me, my soul, that's good. I'm going to go away to heaven. I will leave this material evil world behind. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? There will be a new heaven and a new earth, yes? And Jesus, as we saw, provided for in the cross, not just saving for our soul, but healing for our physical, tangible body. And now he takes it a step further, and he's saying, and the early church is seeing, that this reality of Jesus' kingdom isn't just for here or for here or what we do privately on a Sunday morning. It's now saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. The scriptures are laying a choice. Luke is laying a choice before all of us. Christmas is laying a choice before all of us every year. Is Jesus going to be Lord or is Caesar? Luke is communicating a powerful gospel truth. Gospel means good news. You'll see that used interchangeably. Good news, gospel, it's the same word in the Greek. It includes, his gospel includes a king and a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The way of Jesus' kingdom throws worldly kingdoms upside down, though. Because we we don't operate now, because here's what happens, and this is the mistake a lot of, of people make, is we go, yes, we have to bring his kingdom to earth. And then we're we're trying to use all of these earthly power levers, money, political will, political action groups. You name it. And we're trying to use all these things. Fear. How many of us use fear? Like they're going to mess with your values. If you vote for them, they're going to destroy your values. We use fear. There's nothing about the kingdom of God in that. But but we we get concerned. If, If you're like me, like, ooh, we talk about this topic. And we go, are, are we just going to start doing the same thing in order to bring his kingdom? But, but I, I want to hopefully encourage you in what I'm about to say because the way Jesus' kingdom is worked out in the world is so different. It's completely upside down from the politics of this world. Look at just a few examples. You see, in, in his kingdom, the weak become strong. He says, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. He didn't say, blessed are the meek, we'll give them power and then they'll inherit the earth. He doesn't say that. He's like, but but they're weak, how are they going to inherit anything? Oh, they're so blessed because they're weak, they're meek, they're gentle in spirit. They're going to inherit the earth. Doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. Do you understand it? Come tell me if you understand that, but it doesn't make sense. But this is what Jesus says. The weak, the meek are going to inherit the earth. The humble, the gentle. He also says the poor become rich. He says, I've come to preach good news. There's the gospel word. I've come to preach that to the poor. Well, he means poor in spirit. 
that's not what the word says. It's not what it means. He means poor, like you ain't got money. And then he's, he's also, his kingdom, this doesn't make sense, he, he's come to raise up the oppressed and the marginalized. They're now protected and secure. The voiceless are given a voice by Jesus. Jesus, in his own mission statement, he said, I come to preach good news to the poor. He says, the captives will be released. Many people who are in prison were in prison unjustly. In his day. He also says, I've come to proclaim freedom to the oppressed. Oh, he's talking about spiritual oppression. Don't let dualism trip you up. Do you hear me? Yes, he did. We, we, the order we've talked about all this, salvation, sanctification, healing. King, these, the order we discuss these in matter. You can't jump here to where we are today without starting with the renovation of the heart. Yes? There, there is an order. There is a foundation that these are built upon. But it's not just supposed to stay here as this nice feeling that's warm inside. I'm joking a little bit. Are you guys okay? I know. You're like, it's right before Christmas. Why are you talking about this? So, so do you hear how the levers of how his kingdom operates are incredibly different than what we tend to pull on to make things happen in the kingdoms of our world? It's about celebrating and coming alongside and making yourself weak with those who are weak. The poor becoming rich. The oppressed and marginalized being protected and given a voice. You see, faithfulness to King Jesus requires us to be faithful to the politics of his kingdom. Do I need to say it again? You hear me. Faithfulness to King Jesus, it requires us to be faithful to the politics of his kingdom. It's a so-called political ethic, if you want to call it that, if that's a helpful box for you to put it in. But this is very inconvenient. Do you feel uncomfortable? Do any of you feel uncomfortable talking about this in church? I used to feel very uncomfortable talking about this in church until I realized that I had this kind of physical world, spiritual world split where this stuff was kingdom and this stuff was just kind of extra. But what I've realized is more and more is, is not only is talking about sin and how we need to be saved from it inconvenient on one level, this is almost in some ways more inconvenient. It's hard for me to get ahead in this world if I give up power, if I make myself weak. I know. But blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. It, it, it upends everything. So practically, what does this mean for us? When we live in the kingdom, this kingdom, it's going to require us to demonstrate that we are faithful to King Jesus, not to Caesar. So first, practically, what does this mean? We, we need to operate in the ways of the kingdom of Jesus. So first, we need to, as I said, we need to become meek. We need to become weak. We need to serve those who are weak. 
We need to make ourselves nothing. I love Philippians 2. It's, Paul says, and writes to the Philippian church, he says, this is exactly how you should behave, like Jesus, who in being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, made himself nothing. Go and do likewise. We are not trying to be the noisiest people clamoring for our agenda in the political sphere. We are meant to come alongside those who need to be helped. Make ourselves nothing. We need to care for the poor and the oppressed. There's so many needs in our community. This, this is important for us to understand uh, that we don't just do good things in our community because that's how we show the love of Jesus. That's true, but we are doing it because we are under the authority of a new king in his kingdom and that demands a different way of living in relationship to the world, a different politic. Are you with me? I love our, our Monday Life Group. I've talked about this before, but they have really taken seriously their partnership with the West Milford Presbyterian Church Food Pantry. 16, 18 uh, Thanksgiving meals, full meals, turkey and all they just provided for families in need in the community. Caring for the poor. Caring for the poor, for those who can't help themselves. That's what we're called to do. I know our, our women's group on Tuesday nights has been uh, trying to connect with uh, the, uh, the nursing home community in town. People who are not getting visitors at all. Finding ways to, to be present with them. You guys brought like Christmas ornaments to them, right? Delivered Christmas ornaments to them. Just little ways so people know, hey, we don't, we're not forgetting about you. That's what we tend to do. I could get on another soapbox as we, we, we tend to, uh, at the beginning of life, it happens in a sterile hospital facility. And then at the end of life, we have another sterile facility for all the older people we don't know what to do with. I wonder if the ethics, the politics of Jesus might require something different. Now, I get, there are really complicated situations. I'm talking in broad strokes, broad strokes here. I'm not saying if you put, you know, a family member in a nursing home, you've done something wrong. Please hear me on that. These are really hard, complicated decisions. But, but generally, as a society, I think we, we tend to over-institutionalize. So we need to be there for the poor, the oppressed, the voiceless, those who seem irrelevant to our society. Yes? But... but you don't get any recognition. They can't give money to the church. That's not, the, that's not what we're here for. We're here doing this because this is what the kingdom that we belong to demands. This is what our king has called us to. We're doing exactly what our king did and does. This is part of the good news of the gospel. So it's going to require us to be meek, Weak. It's going to require us to care for the poor. And then finally, um, it's going to require us to be people of even racial reconciliation and restoration. Now, this is where people go, oh, this is too political now. I need to step out. 
The other stuff, okay, I can care for the poor, but now it sounds like you've got a earthly political agenda. Please listen to what the scriptures say on this, okay? Please listen. Would you agree that anything that the cross has accomplished is central to the gospel? Not a trick, not a trick question. I'm not trying to trick anyone, but would you say that's fair or reasonable? Okay, if the Bible says Jesus did this on the cross, we should probably be pretty intentional with how we incorporate that into our Christian walk. Is that fair? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, 14 to 18. I think it's up on the screen. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when his, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Pause right there. This is written to a very specific group. He's, he is, a, 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 Paul is uh, specifically addressing an ethnic uh, ethnocentrism of Jewish preference over every other kind of people group, every other culture, language. Uh, the word racism or racial stuff doesn't appear in the Bible because that was invented way later. That's a modern word, okay? But here, Paul's addressing something very specific. Christ in his own body broke down the wall of hostility that separated these groups from each other. Now we say, okay, great, yes, I agree. There's nothing that makes me better than anyone else. I totally am on board with that. There's no spiritual thing that separates. But hold on, this word is not only describing a spiritual reality. When Paul is writing this word about wall, a wall of hostility, he is describing a literal wall in the temple complex in Jerusalem. And in the temple, the Jews could go inside close to the presence of God. And guess who had to stay on the other side of the wall? Everyone else. Even though Jesus said, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And, and so we, we have these separations. We say, well, it, it's, this is different or, it, you know, this is, this is a, a spiritual reality or can't they just, I agree, they can get close to God over there. But what Paul is saying is the what the cross accomplished between these two groups ethnically was that the very wall, the very system, the very way they had organized their society around worship was being completely ripped up from nothing by the cross of Jesus implying these groups needed to incorporate. Now, it's not just an implication. He goes on in verse 15. It says, he did this, Jesus, ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by, look at this, this is amazing, by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. This is where modern, secular, kind of like we need to have more diversity goes terribly wrong because they're not interested in King Jesus. One pastor said, modern, the modern world wants all the benefits of the kingdom. Human rights, that is a Christian, Judeo-Christian idea. It never existed anywhere else in the world. Historians, secular historians are writing about this now. They're realizing without this, human rights would not, why would we, human rights? I'm stronger than you. I'm doing what I want. So, so what happens in secular culture is we want the kingdom without the king. But the kingdom falls apart if we're not solely given to the king. 
It all devolves. And so here he is. We can't make unity between groups of people on our own. What does he say? He took and made the two groups one in his body. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Here we go. Verse 17, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles and to the Jews who were far away. If he had written this in a modern church time, he would, could have written to the church in America in, in uh, the early 1900s and said, hey, uh, you know how you're separating your white brothers and sisters from your black brothers and sisters? Jesus paid for this when he broke the dividing wall of hostility between you. This, is, this, this issue has existed to some extent in the American church even today. Martin Luther King in the, in the 60s said that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America because of this. And you know what's happened in America is we've said this stuff is gospel, but this stuff is kind of extra. But I, if you're reading the same thing I'm reading, what is the cross providing for? What is the king doing you see, salvation was accomplished. Did we not see that salvation was accomplished through the work of the cross? Did we not see that sanctification was accomplished through the work of the cross? Did we not see that our healing was accomplished and provided for in the work of the cross? Did we not see here that a new kingdom ethic, a new politic, a new way of relating together has been provided for in the cross? This is all part of the gospel. This is what every, every government, especially in the West, longs for, but we're clawing around in the dark because they have no idea what they're looking for. And this isn't to say the church knows how to do it best. We haven't followed our own gospel sometimes. To deny this gospel truth is effectively to say Jesus isn't Lord, Caesar still is. Because in Caesar's kingdom, you can separate people based on social class. You can have people go where you need them to at the drop of a hat. You can deny those who have less power than you. You can take power for yourself because you're stronger or have more money. You can make up rules based on who's in charge. This is what every earthly kingdom does, right? It doesn't matter which part of the political persuasion that you're interested in. One party gets charged, and what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to make sure that they lord it over the other side. It's happening right now. There's a new session of Congress start starting. And it happens seemingly every two years. And the other side's going to come in, and they're going to lord it over the people that they beat. They just love to take power from each other. But what does Jesus' kingdom do? Blessed are those who are meek. You're going to inherit the earth. They say, go ahead. You can have that power. That's why Jesus told his disciples, because they were ready to go. Like, that town didn't like you, Jesus. Let's call down thunder and fire and all that good stuff. And he's like, oh, settle down. And then they're all like, hey, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? If you want to be the greatest, let me tell you how to do it. The one who's last will be first. The one who's first will be last. 
every kingdom on earth has their idea of justice, their idea of peace. doesn't matter if it's China, the United States, Mexico, Peru, Chile. doesn't matter if it's somewhere in Mongolia, India, Kenya. Every government, every human kingdom has an idea of what they think justice and peace is. You might not agree with that idea, but they have an idea. Every kingdom's longing for justice and peace of one version or another and always falling short. How many wrongs have you seen in your life that need to be righted? Personal wrongs. Wrongs in the workplace that you work in. Wrongs in the government that you're under. How many wrongs are you like, this is wrong, this needs to be righted. We're longing for something to be done. This is at the heart what Advent is. Advent is a season of waiting and longing. It's a season of saying, this is so messed up. We need someone who can bring real justice. Sin's broken our, our world. We're separated from God. We need sanctification. We're, we're sick. We're dying. We need a healer. We, there's so much injustice in the world. There's so much injustice I've experienced. Lord, we're exhausted. How long until you bring justice? And this is the waiting of Advent. This isn't technically the Christmas season yet. That doesn't start till December 25th, according to the church calendar. The Advent season is a season for us to remember that we need a king and we need his kingdom. We long for a different way. The announcement of the shepherds is that the one you've been longing for, the one who brings true justice, the one who brings peace has come. He's not going to fit neatly into your political categories. This king is going to bring a kingdom unlike anything the world has ever seen. Every wrong, though, will be set right. Every injustice will be brought to justice. Not through human effort or through mob mentality or who is the loudest. Justice will be accomplished by the king. On the cross. And you and I who have said Jesus is king and Caesar is not are living faithfully in accordance with the king's commands until he returns. You see, Advent launched the kingdom. Second Advent will complete it. Things are still not right in the world, yeah? Our hope isn't just in what Jesus did, our hope is that he is going to come. But this time he is going to come, the scripture says, in glory. And the scripture says that every eye will see him. It won't be hidden, it won't be secret this time. It will be very obvious. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when he comes, he will judge 
what was done in his name and what was not done in his name and in the name of other kingdoms. He will judge what was done in the name of Jesus and what was done in the name of Caesar. He will bring justice and true peace. He will right every wrong. Every broken thing will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Our bodies will be new. Our cultures, our ethnicities will be redeemed and made to be what they were always intended to be. I love that in Revelation, by the way. That doesn't go away. It says every tribe and tongue and language was gathered around the throne. Jesus isn't going to just, no such thing as culture now. He's so beautiful in, in who he is that he wants us to gather in all of our unique ways to show the beauty of our creator. And when we walk in this, when we are faithful to the king in his kingdom, we can have hope. Even when those holiday dinners get a little tense. And you can be weak. And you can say, I don't know. You can say, I don't have an answer. And you can just say, I'm sorry. And you can grieve with those who grieve, mourn, grieve, mourn with those who mourn, celebrate with those who celebrate. Because Jesus has come to be our king, and he will come to complete what he started. We're going to close in worship. We're going to take communion. This is a heavy way to end the Advent series and Advent season. But it's so important that we not shy away from this because Jesus has provided for every aspect of existence in his body and blood. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.